Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson, and this is episode number 131. Well, just ahead, can Visa survive a fight with Amazon? Plus, Warren Buffett's favorite fintech collapses amid stories of Chinese hacking, an FBI raid, and Brazilian credit fraud. We'll have that story and a reboot at a big 3D printing company, 3D Systems. Listen to our in-depth conversation with the company's latest CEO, Dr. Jeffrey Graves. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, but make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, you name it. But if you subscribe, you won't miss a single show. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. And joining me, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster from the wilds of Los Angeles. Yes, very wild here. So is it at this exact moment, is it dark there? What time is it getting dark? Uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's getting very dark here, yeah. Uh, it's early, our, you know, early, yes. We're recording this past five, so... At five o'clock, that sun is on its way out. All right. Well, um, I want to look at a few of our uh, favorite companies and some interesting companies. We've got some great stories to look at today, Isaac. Yeah, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, let's start with TJX. TJX. TJX trades under TJX and shares have gained 20% in a year. Yeah, so not uh, underperforming the market, but uh, mm -hmm. reporting a really strong quarter um, just recently. And I think that I think this is a really interesting company to look at at this point. We're trying to understand, is inflation transitory? Is inflation not transitory? Is wage inflation enough to make up for price inflation? Is it better that people are making more money? And does that make up for the fact that some of the goods that people buy are more expensive? How long lasting will that be? And what is the sweet price point right now in the world of retail? Well, TJX says it's cheap but not quite as cheap as things used to be. The company reported 14% uh, comp store sales, at least for stores that were open a year ago, and they compared them to a pre-pandemic quarter, 14% um, over the pre-pandemic. So two years ago numbers. Of all the businesses they own, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Home Goods, what's your go-to there, Isaac? Uh, you know, we do, I do, we do, we do frequent a Marshalls. Home Goods is does. big. I don't know if it's an East Coast thing, but uh, the Apple model is very big on Home Goods. I think uh, there's Home Goods out here too. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is. In really in big case, in the Midwest, though. Um, well, Home Goods was their best performer, up 34% uh, from 2020. Um, and uh, I heard a mutual friend of ours talking today about this company, not giving us a lot of insight, just saying that she likes a good deal. But really what the deal is with this business is the deals aren't what they used to be. TJ customers are getting wage increases, right? We're seeing that across the economy, that wage inflation is happening uh, people are getting higher salaries, higher paychecks, bigger paychecks. They've gotten fattened uh, savings accounts from all the stimulus and everything that's gone on in the last year. They're out there spending money. They're spending money in size. TJ Maxx has been able to selectively 
increase prices. Selectively in individual stores and individual areas, find things they can jack prices on, recognizing that their customers have more money in their pocket. Here's TJ Maxx CEO, Ernie Herman. We did it very selectively, and that's how we're going to continue to do it. And the merchants are doing a great job at, at approaching it in this extremely uh, analytical and as well as verifying that, again, our out-the-door retail is significantly below anyone else's out-the-door retail. Uh, remember, the, the foundation of this is what's going on in this country, which is that wages and supply chain costs are hitting, um, you know, really like never before altogether. And it is it is forcing uh, retailers around us to either promote less or raise their retail. So it is just creating a window of opportunity that we, uh, and, and the wage thing, I, I have no reason to believe that that ends. Um, so our teams, yes, started back then. We had a significant amount of the selective uh, uh, adjusting of retails, and we have had a very uh, good success during the third quarter. So I think that's super interesting. They're not in the super low end dollar store, you know. They're but they're not, they're not at the Macy's level. They think that they've got uh, some room to play in between, and they're trying to find their sweet spot. But also recognizing that maybe the prices they're paying for goods are inflated and aren't going to last. But the wage inflation, people's uh, better standard of living will last. And I think that's really interesting business-wise. It's interesting, you know, for all of our lives. It's interesting politically. You know, we'll see if that's uh, what happens. But that's certainly what Ernie Herman at TJ Maxx is expecting. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at an interesting fintech company called Stoneco. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with Stoneco before this. Um, Stoneco trades under STNE, and shares have dropped almost 70% over the past 12 months. And yet they still have a $6.4 billion valuation. So think of this company when it was more like a $25 billion company. Uh, that's where we were a year ago. This is one of those hot fintech companies backed by none other than Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Um, his Todd Combs, one of his investment managers there, some at one point... He was thought to be the successor to Warren Buffett. Well, this is one of his investments, and it was just a bad one. Um, this company has kind of fallen apart of the seams. And what an interesting story. My God, you could do an episodic podcast just on this one fintech, I think. We won't. We'll just talk about it for a minute or two. Well, maybe but we still, should. Maybe we should. Maybe we will. But for the moment, let's look at net income that they reported the most recent quarter, $24 million, down 54% from a year earlier. This is supposed to be an explosive growing fintech. The results were hurt by higher funding costs as, as you know, the company. Well, I should back up. What do these guys do? They do um, point of sale systems uh, for small businesses and businesses in Brazil. They expanded to lending money to merchants in Brazil. So, so they wouldn't have to wait for merchants to pay them or customers, even uh, customers bank accounts to pay them. So they could get loans out for sales that they did on the spot. Um, by issuing those loans, they were taking on credit risk. They were also taking on uh, uh, dollar real risk. Um, well, you know, more for simplifying their business. There isn't a place they didn't run into problems. So there's tightening, in, uh, monetary tightening in Brazil. There's also changing regulations in Brazil about how much companies have to put up, uh, whether it's small businesses or even big businesses have to put up when they're issuing these kinds of loans, put up as collateral. Uh, Brazil has tightened those rules, making it tougher for these guys to just issue debt 
and give machines out willy-nilly. This business goes back to 2012, and it started, as I mentioned, as a, as a payment technology. Um, they, they branched out into lending and then credit cards. Um, they use credit card purchases, collateral. The credit business has just been a mess. They've had much more losses than they expected. They weren't putting enough big enough provisions. That's the game. That's the story of every company that's loaned, ever loaned money, right? You loan money in good times, you don't put up a lot of reserves. Then when the times change and you didn't put up enough reserves, you find out in the words of, of Stone Coast's uh, favorite backer, when the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. Well, the tide's gone out. These guys didn't have enough provisions. They increased provisions last quarter. It's still bad. In fact, it was so bad they had to stop lending last quarter. And in the conference call today, they said uh, they don't know when they're going to get back to it, probably first quarter of next year, but they kind of hedged a little bit. And then there's the problem of their point-of-sale machines or cash registers, which they mostly get from a company called Pax Global Technology. It's a Chinese-based, publicly traded company in Hong Kong. Well, Pax Global Technology, their point-of-sale device maker that this company chiefly relies upon, the end of October, their subsidiary in Florida was raided by the FBI and by Homeland Security and by Customs and Border Protection. There was a story on a Krebs security blog saying that these machines manufactured in China and used for all these transactions in Brazil and in the U.S. There was a story uh, in the Krebs uh, 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 cybersecurity website suggesting that this company has an involvement in cyber attacks on the U.S. and EU countries and in Brazil. Wow. From these devices that Stone Co. was relying on to grow their business in Brazil. So the oh very gosh. machines they're selling, uh, at least the Homeland Security and the FBI are concerned, according to this report, are concerned, are being used in the global hacking of customer information. So they got credit problems. They got monetary tightening problems. They're not putting enough, loan, uh, enough money aside for loans. And the machines they're distributing may be involved in global cyber hacking. Stone Co. has got some problems. How are these executives sleeping at night? I mean, wow. Well, I was interested that the CEO didn't answer a lot of the questions on the call. Those were mm -hmm. fostered off to their chief strategy officer. She sounded very capable, Leah Machado de Matos. Um, but when she was asked about when they're going to, you know, get back to their original product, she's saying they're retesting that product. And short-term loans, maybe fourth quarter, maybe first quarter, you know, this is the middle of November. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you mean they're by fourth quarter? They're halfway through fourth quarter. <laughs> if they're saying maybe fourth quarter or between Do they calculate the it differently down in Brazil? Quarter? Yeah. Yeah, well, she's in Miami, I, I believe. But um, they are implementing some improvements, are going to start to test the impact of those improvements. What they had to say about their business right now sounds like it's very much in development. It's very much in the hands of engineers. It is not functional and it's not in market and that's a problem. Listen to uh, Chief Strategy Officer Leah Machado de Meadows. So as, as uh, I mentioned, um, we expect to start retesting um, our original product, which is short-term loans, between the fourth quarter of 21 and the first quarter of 22. We're implementing in this product several improvements so that we can start to test and test the impacts of those improvements without needing to rely on the registry systems fully functioning. So those improvements uh, are, uh, for example, the inclusion of personal guarantees from the business owners and potentially other businesses they may have, improve risk scoring through additional data, 
And part of that has to do with a very important fact that I didn't detail much, which is incorporating hub operation into the credit much better than we did before. So, of course, we always like our companies to be more fully hatched than they are. We would all like to be more fully hatched than we are. But this business is clearly not even out of the gate with where they were years ago, which, and as you mentioned, Isaac, has resulted in a 75% drop in the stock. And wow, what an international tangled web they have woven. This really will make such a compelling miniseries or movie or podcast series. <laughs> or, or your next Netflix doc, I see it. Yeah. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, as long as we're talking payments, let's talk about that little company known as Visa. Visa. I've heard of this one. Visa trades under Visa, V-I-S-A, and shares are basically flat in a year. Yeah. And, you know, when people talk about Silicon Valley technology companies, this one could argue is one of the most important there are. Right up there with Google, Facebook, Apple, right here in Silicon Valley. Um, this company, uh, uh, good reporting from Bloomberg News, breaking news uh, from Bloomberg about a problem that Visa has, a new problem, seemingly a new problem, with Amazon. So uh, Am Visa, or sorry, Amazon has announced, announced they will no longer accept Visa-branded credit cards from customers in the UK starting next year. Ouch. So if you're a Visa user in the UK, get that Christmas shopping done on Amazon because that's not going to happen next year. Um, there has been some tension in that relationship, and it has not been widely reported again Kudos to uh, Bloomberg for breaking this news. Now, Amazon wouldn't give any details about their issues with Visa, only saying the card company is more intransigent uh, than other payment services when they're trying to get them to cut their costs and cut the fees that they charge customers. Amazon, of course, trying to get people to shop on Amazon by charging lower prices and having lower prices that their customers pay. Those fees to Visa are included in Amazon costs and uh, you want to get this gone, uh, Amazon, a quote uh, from Amazon said that uh, Visa is not working towards the same goal. Now, mm. Bloomberg did some back of the envelope math, but uh, but more than into my mind than they usually do. And I was glad to see it. Um, Visa credit cards are only 7% of card-based purchases in the UK. It's a smaller business in the UK than it is for US consumers. So if uh, Amazon did $27 billion in UK sales in 2020, it's a little less than $2 billion in sales. So the net effect on uh, Visa or Amazon may be not significant, but it suggests that these problems could continue worldwide. And indeed, as I did my research on this story, I found some problems, some tension in that relationship between Visa and Amazon. Not too long ago, they started charging a surcharge for charges in Singapore and then added Australia. The chief financial officer, Vasant Prabhu, was asked about this at a uh, Deutsche Bank conference uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, the comments flew under my radar, certainly, but he talked about how unfortunate it was that their partner Visa is adding these surcharges, uh, or the partner that Amazon's partner, uh, uh, Visa. Visa finds it unfortunate they're adding these surcharges uh, because, of course, they want people to choose to spend money with Visa or anywhere else. There is tension in that relationship. See if you can hear it in the tone of the voice the chief financial officer of Visa. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, our goal is to ensure that everybody can use, use their Visa cards wherever they wish to shop and not have to pay surcharges. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, all the consumer surveys that have been done 
Um, you know, consumers overwhelmingly believe that, you know, the cost of payments is a merchant cost of business and that they shouldn't be charged for it. And they find it frustrating when they're charged additional fees. You know, we're, we're obviously disappointed that Amazon decided to do this uh, for credit card holders in Australia and Singapore. Um, you know, it's not good for the merchant and it's not good for consumers. Now, having said that, of course, Amazon is an important and valued partner on many fronts. As a merchant, you know, they're a, a co-brand partner of ours. They're an innovator. Uh, they care a lot about consumer experience. Uh, we've had situations like this in the past. Um, you know, I'm sure we can resolve these things. Um, and we hope that that will happen soon. So I'm sure we can resolve these things. We hope that that'll ha- happen soon. Yeah, maybe not so much, at least not in the UK. One to watch here. Uh, a lot of holders of Visa Chase card or Amazon Chase cards that are Visa cards here in the U.S. And one wonders if they might look at uh, MasterCard as a competitor. Certainly that's the threat. All right, coming up next, an interesting company that I've been following for a very long time. I have my own history with this company when it was kind of full of baloney back in the day. Is it better? We've got the 3D Systems CEO, Dr. Jeffrey Graves. He's somewhat new to the company Uh, And he's got a different take on how the 3D printing business should work for that 3D printing giant 3D systems. We'll talk to Dr. Jeffrey Graves right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Dr. Jeffrey Graves. He's the CEO, the new CEO, somewhat new, new to me, for 3D Systems, uh, that uh, big, important 3D printing company, uh, Dr. Graves. What is, what is your doctorate in? Oh, my doctorate, a great question. My doctorate's in metallurgical engineering, uh, bachelor's, master's, PhD, all in metallurgy, which these days would probably be called more more fashionably material science. Right. Uh, but back in my day, it was metallurgical engineering. And are you Minnesotan? I know that you moved to that job a year ago from Minnesota. No, we actually, I'm from Indiana originally. We lived all over the place, but uh, most recently up in Minnesota. Yeah, I was up there for nine years and then uh, made this transition uh, in the summer of 2020. Yeah, I was just getting that to Minnesota. Nice. I appreciate that. So um, I'll tell you about my complicated history of 3D systems, and I, but I wanted, how do you define what 3D systems is? Well, we're the largest provider. And interestingly enough, uh, our founder and still our chief technology officer invented additive manufacturing. And today we're the largest provider of additive manufacturing solutions in the world. And that, that, that includes printers, material software, really everything it takes for a customer to adopt additive manufacturing. That founder being uh, Chuck Hall. Chuck Hall. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, the, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain for the purpose of disclosure and everything else. I have no position in the, in the company or the stock or anything, but I have some scar tissue from years past. A long, long time ago, back when I was working at a, at a fund that shorted stocks, I was short the stock. I did an enormous amount of research about the company at the time. Many years later, um, I was no longer short the stock. I would be, went back to being a journalist. And we had the CEO at the time, Avi Reichsthal, I think was his name, come through our, our offices of the TV show I was working on with a, a, a consumer 3D printer, which seemed like an interesting idea. And he had this thing that he could could print a small, in this case it was like a little matchbox or a Hot Wheels car or something, a little toy in just a half an hour. 
we gave him an hour and it took him an hour and a half to print this thing. And it was just <laughs> junk by the time it was done. Um, and so my, my, the history for, and I've spent a lot of time under, uh, understanding that 3d printing is not a new idea and right. it's not a new technology. It's often new to people who are hearing about it, but it's been around for a long time. And I wonder where, and I sort of see the evolution of the company in your financial filings, where your business is going. It doesn't seem to be going into the big growth industrial parts. If the space shuttle needs a gear and they forgot to pack one along, they can bring a 3D printer and get up and flying. No, it's a, it's been an interesting evolution, Corey. And I, I you know, I, I, obviously I came to 3D systems in the in 2020, but I've been in and around, you know, metallurgical manufacturing processes my whole life. Uh, 3D printing was invented in the late 80s. And to your point, it was invented with plastics and it was a prototyping technology for uh, a number of years, a long number of years. Rapid prototyping, right? That Rapid the, prototyping. The you could turn a computer design into a solid object and show people what you had designed. And then those prototypes evolved. They became functional prototypes, but still they were they were not industrial products. They were meant for display and, and use. Now you could take an off ramp and look at toys and other other consumer objects and things, but really where where additive manufacturing has really been headed and where the real value is at is in industrial applications. And I and I use it, the word industrial broadly. It can be for exotic machine components for rocketry or automobiles, other applications of that. But it has a great home in the healthcare industry for implants for medical implants. Well, what we've taken on now, really, and it's growing quite rapidly, is what we call mass customization. It's for making medical devices, basically for implanting in the body, for repairing bones or devices to go in your body for uh, heart arrhythmia, other, other types of, of medical treatments. Um, you can make them on a mass production basis, but make them customized. They bring an enormous amount of value to a person or to a, an industrial product and you can make them very cost effectively. What's changed, Corey, is the printer technology itself has evolved, but it's mainly the materials that go through the printer. I was gonna we ask can, what- We can know. print things now out of, out of industrial plastics or metals like titanium, steels, nickel-based alloys, copper, a whole range of real industrial materials. And that's what's changed the game in, for, for additive manufacturing in recent years. We like titanium for implants. So it can't be magnetized. <laughs> Turns yeah. out that's a good thing. Exactly. And if you want to go through a metal detector or you don't want an MRI, you don't really want the magnetization. <laughs> right. It doesn't work so well. And and you wouldn't believe it now. We're extending the technology into biological materials that, that are, are basically what your human body's made from. So we're moving in now to the printing of replacement arteries and veins and soft tissue and eventually human organs. I saw United Therapeutics cross uh, in your, um, one right. your press releases and in a couple of filings. What are you doing with United Therapeutics? Well, a fascinating company led Absolutely. by a, a truly dynamic woman um, who's had a vision of, of of printing an unlimited supply of human organs with a real focus on lungs, human that, lung. That being a Martine Rothblatt, who Martine Rothblatt doesn't Blatt, have a bigger and, fan than the guy sitting in my chair right now. Oh, I tell you, she's fabulous, and and it's a it's a great personal story if you have time to follow it. Her daughter has a, a lung illness. And the real solution for that is a transplant of lungs. But there's a there's a, as you know there's a dramatic shortage of all transplantable organs. So she set out in her her latest mission in life, and she's had many of them, to have an unlimited supply of human organs. And we were fortunate to uh, partner with her, uh, and under her support for the last uh, four years, develop the printing process for printing lungs. 
basically printing the infrastructure for lungs, and then they're followed by by uh, cellularization treatments at United Therapeutics. But we're in partnership for them for developing printable organs made out of a person's own body, own cells, so they avoid the any need for immunosuppression treatments. So they're which is often what limits a person's life. So in yeah, in principle, it avoids all of that kind of therapy needs. And they are made up eventually of your own cells and your own body and extend your life um, for its, its normal duration. So we're really excited. Uh, the technology's come a long way. We're now branching it into non-organ applications and then, and then also laboratory applications for biological systems. So this is the G-Wiz needle part of 3D printing. <laughs> that that is, is everyone's dream. Um, I'm hoping I'll have a brain implant myself. Um, but you know the, well, the the nuts and bolts of it today is in fact sometimes nuts and bolts. You've seen your industrial business lately decline. I know you've done some divestitures, and your press releases often talk about how you're growing, except for the divestitures, which <laughs> I've, I've pardon me, I, I never give anyone credit for that. But, but over time, that'll go away. But your healthcare business is growing faster. Number yeah, one, it, it's, it's and, growing up. Yeah. Go ahead, Corey. I'm well, sorry. my big question there is how much of that is dental and how much of that is post COVID dental? So if you, so what we, every quarter now we talk about uh, healthcare in total, and then we divide it between dental and, and what we call medical devices. So it's really all other medical applications. So dental is clearly growing very strong double digits. We, we have a, a great partnership, great customer um, that makes the uh, clear aligners, uh, teeth aligners, it's uh, the company called Align. They're doing fabulously well. They're growing very quickly. They, they, uh, they're, it's basically our technology that helps power their company. Um, but in, that's in the dental space. That is growing very strong double digits. But I would tell you that the, non, the non-dental part of our healthcare business, which is, is roughly half the revenue, maybe a little bit less, but close to it, it grew 15% last quarter. So it, it's doing very, very well. And so eventually these will both be very important segments to us. And, and they are already, and they'll be increasingly important over time. It seems with some of the other dental companies that we've talked to, the very few we've talked to on this podcast, and yes, we have talked to dental companies in this podcast. <laughs> there are a bunch of publicly traded companies in that world. They've seen a fantastic post-COVID year, but it seems like it's a lot of um, procedures and even facilities that were closed during COVID, procedures that were delayed during COVID, that post-COVID into recovery, a hopeful recovery, we've seen a big pickup in that stuff, but it might be one time in nature. And I wonder how you look at the the expected growth for that. I, mean, I don't I don't care about the Wall Street sort of side of things, no, but I do sure. care about kind of where growth in the business is and yeah. how much of that was is kind of one time and related. Well, clearly there was a boost coming out of COVID, but we've we've we're well past that boost now, Corey. But and that's why when we publicly talk about our numbers, we compare ourselves to twenty, and they're really impressive growth rates, obviously with the COVID effect. But increasingly now we compare ourselves to twenty nineteen, which was well pre COVID. And, and we grew strong double digits over 2019 for the last two quarters. So we're past in the healthcare side of the business, we're past the recovery from COVID and on to true organic growth, which is very exciting. So I, you know, I, I love it. I think it's a, it's a funny effect of Zoom and, and Teams and things. People are now seeing themselves very frequently all day long. So there's a big quest for dental treatments, obviously, for people's smiles. But the rest of, of healthcare, Corey, is much larger in, in theory, market size, and it's it's a great business for us. We've we we produce over seven hundred thousand parts a day 
through our additive manufacturing technology. We, we don't produce directly, but our equipment produces 700,000 parts a day. It's more than the entire industry combined. So we're very, very pleased with that. And a, a fair and number is that of because, them- is, I'm sorry, Jeff, is no, it because ahead. the machines are smaller and can do kind of, like, you know, because I, so one of the companies that I used to cover uh, back in my days, again, not as portfolio manager was Stratasys, competitor viewers, but at least at the time, they made much more higher end machines, much more expensive machines, they could do much uh, more finer parts, if you will, um, that were actually used in, in manufacturing. And, I, and it seemed that the, the market for you guys was on the lower end and the higher volume. Uh, no, no, I would I would tell you, Corey, today it's it's almost reverse for us. I mean, the, the real volume for us now is in, you know, more specialty parts. So, again, we call them kind of mass customization. So it's still reasonably high volumes, but there's a high value to customization. And our, our printers are, uh, you know, we think they're a great value. They're not inexpensive, but they are on the lower lower expense side in the market. So we think it's a good value up front for customers and then a good recurring revenue stream for materials and software as well. But you know, all I can tell you is our, you know, we print more parts a day than everybody else combined you know, for industrial applications. So, and I say that for healthcare and industrial, when I say industrial, it means across both markets. I want to talk just a little bit about your, your coming in here as CEO and taking over, not for um, uh, the CEO I mentioned from a while ago, but uh, Vijay Yoshi, who'd been at uh, HP back in the day um, right. and was with 3D Systems right before you, you've made a lot of executive changes. And I wonder kind of where the, you know, where a a, a, um, a thoughtful, well-minded person was taking the company and you've taken it in a little bit of a different direction. How yeah. would you define the differences? So the, so what I, what I believe, Corey, I, so my, my style and what I did here when I arrived is, you know, you go around and talk to a lot of employees about what's going well. And you, you soon pick up threads uh, of, of culture, if you will, that are, and, and if you look at it from a business perspective, it, it culturally resonates with your employees and you can make a good business from it. And what re resonated at 3D Systems, what I believe we can be the best in the world at is, is, is additive applications. So when a customer comes to us with a new part to make, we can demonstrate the part, we can demonstrate the workflow and the economics, we can take it into some limited volume production, and then we can transition it to them. That's our work, that became our working model. So that that was not consistent with some of the executives that were here when I arrived. It, they had a they had a different mindset because there's a lot of sell different printers business selling. Yeah, exactly. And and that we're not we're not a printer sales company any longer. I would tell you, and I, I mean this, I mean this fully. We're an application-focused company. We bring together printers, materials, and software to solve problems. And when those problems are solved, we can we can produce some limited quantities of the part, but then we facilitate their their production. And of course, then we sell them printers, we sell them materials, things. But it's approached as solving a problem, solving an application. And with that simple concept, we reorganize the business in from it was organized by printers, materials, and and software. We reorganized into healthcare and industrial, so two business units, roughly equivalent size. We we restructured to get cost out of the business. There was a lot of redundancy. For example, sales teams, there were redundant sales teams and others. We eliminated that redundancy, drove efficiencies, and we divested everything, Corey, that was not related to additive. We had a, a, a number of businesses that were really, it was digital tech, manufacturing technology, but they were subtractive, they were machining. So we sold, and they were fine businesses, but that would, but in our new theme, we shouldn't own them. So we sold them. We retired all of our debt. We put a half a billion dollars on the balance sheet. 
Today, we're growing faster. We grew faster in the first couple of quarters this year than the rest of the industry combined in dollar terms. We generated more profit than the rest of the industry combined for the first couple of quarters of the year and the third quarter is still being reported. Um, and, And that's why I go back to the core growth and comparing us to 2019. Today, as we sit here, we're growing double digits organically. We're generating strong EBITDA margins. And we've got over half a billion dollars on the balance sheet, and we just completed a, another an incremental bond offering last week. So, so we're we're in great financial condition, and and importantly, Corey, we've got a sustainable business model that everybody understands and lines up with within the company culturally. So it's a I, I'm I'm thrilled to be here and with the progress we've made and the future outlook. Sounds like you've been a CEO before, um, <laughs> which you were. What do you feel like? There are things you know now that you wish you'd known before, mistakes you might have made in the past, or things that you, problems you encountered when you were CEO of MTS that you might have uh, you won't you won't do that again. Well, I, I don't know. I when, you so. walk, when you walk in, yeah, you always you always learn along the way, and every company is different. In in its, I would tell you that at 3D Systems, people were ready for a change. People were were t- frankly tired of of not growing the top line of, of, of money losing. They were spreading themselves too thin and, but working extremely hard. So you're working hard, but not getting the rewards for doing it. And by streamlining the mission and really focusing the company, we're now profitable. We can reward people properly and we can invest for our future. And, and their willingness to adapt to change Corey was remarkable. And I, so yeah, part of it is you get better and better as at being a CEO over the years. Part of it is is what you walk into in a company, and it's kind of un- unseeable from the outside. So it's very interesting. Um, you know, I'm not I, I'm not sure if I would have done things differently at MTS or not, but I I, I loved that company, and it it a terrific company, great run, and I, I was very proud of what we accomplished there as well. Different starting point at 3D Systems, but I'm really pleased with the progress. Dr. Jeff Graves is the CEO of 3D Systems. We're glad for your time today. Um, it's a, it's been an interesting company to watch over all these. My goodness, fifteen years well, of watching this company. It's crazy. I'm getting old. Thanks, Corey. It's um, a, it's great to be here. I'm honored to be here and and uh, and on. talk to you today. Appreciate it. All right. Well, coming up next, the drill down bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot. We've got one number about 3D systems to shed some light onto those business units when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you listen to the Drill Down podcast constantly. Even some of our older shows, you can find those all on your favorite podcast platform, including iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn, you name it. Check out all of our historic podcasts as well as our new podcasts every week. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite. Isaac, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, it sounded like that medical business, a healthcare business is going fantastically. And 3D Systems likes us to look at their adjusted numbers. You know how much I don't like adjusted numbers. They talk about if you take out their divestitures, they're a dental application or healthcare business driven by dental applications and printers and materials. If you take out the divestitures, that business is up 45% year over year in the last quarter. There's number 45%. Hmm. Do you think we shouldn't take out those divestitures? No, I think we should. Well, if you didn't, it wouldn't be 45%, it'd be 28%. Ah. And if you compared it to the last quarter, 
without that uh, magical divestiture adjustment, it'd be down 8% quarter over quarter. Oh, wow. So this is going to be an interesting one uh, if you're so interested to watch and really see if the rebound in dental sales continues into the next quarter and the quarter after that, if they're already seeing the actual numbers come down. Um, interestingly, also, they compared last quarter in, their, in the text of their most recent press release um, they didn't compare the adjusted last quarter. So we'll see how those numbers turn out. Time will tell. All right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We really do appreciate your time. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The dog in here in the background is Nikki. She's shedding like crazy right now. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.